I bought a copy of the Papa Lip CD, High Time Now, when it was first released in 1998. One of the tracks on it, I'll Be Free, struck me as capturing the optimistic enthusiasm of youth. But what happens to the hopes and dreams of musicians just starting out? I'm Neil Ashworth, and this is I'll Be Free, a podcast about musicians finding a way to make a living, the lessons they've learned, and how they survived, or plan to survive, a life in music. This is the third episode of the Balmain Trilogy. You know, a lot of people fall into the trap too when they're younger, but they don't value themselves enough. It takes a lot to get up there in front of a crowd. Cara Granger fronted Balmain R&B band Papalypse with uh, vocals and guitar. I spoke to her in the CBAA studios in Alexandria after her appearance at Blues Fest 2021 was cancelled and she was about to return to Nashville where she now lives. Since Papalypse... She's forged an authentic solo career. Let's find out how. A real scene in Balmain in the 90s, wasn't there? Surely was, yeah. Uh, Balmain, I think, has the most amount of pubs for the population. In Sydney, I think it has the, the... Well, at one time, it did have the most amount of pubs. Of course, it's right on the water, and it used to be predominantly for the dock workers and the shipbuilders and who frequented and liked the pubs, as you can imagine, back in the day. <laughs> there was loads of great live music venues, and the time I was growing up and... As I started to go and explore the pub scene, blues and soul was really popular at the time. I mean, nearly every night of the week you could go to Balmain and see a soul or a blues or a funk band or there'd be always and there'd be a jazz band on the Sundays at the Unity Hall Hotel, Roger Janes and the crew. A lot of music in Balmain. You're going to Balmain High School? Yeah. And your brother's a couple of years older than you? That's right. I've got to be honest, you're making me dig deep into the filing cabinet here. <laughs> so um, when I was 18 and leaving school, what exactly how it came to play um, is very hard for me to remember. But I will say, yeah, they were already playing underaged in several venues around Balmain. Rowan and, and Mitchell. And Mitch was playing in another band called Slim La Beef and the Spare Ribs, which Alex Lloyd, then Alex Wasiliev, of course, got going. He was the main singer. And, of course, he more recently had that hit with Amazing. So he was another Balmain guy. Mitch was playing in a band with him. And then I, I can't remember how it all unfolded. Mitch was rehearsing with Rowan and Declan and a couple of other people in our garage in Balmain. And I heard them playing and I showed up there a couple of times and started playing tambourine and sitting in the corner and watching because I kind of wanted to do everything my older brother did. I haven't really ever told him this, but ever since I was about eight, mum and, mum and dad would say, take your younger sister with you. She wants to go with you. <laughs> So I liked hanging out with the guys. I liked hanging out with the boys. I basically wormed my way in from playing tambourine on the sidelines to the, the main singer of the band. Although we shared, me and Mitch were both front people in the band. But yeah, so um, it worked. And then there was a, we booked a gig at the Unity Hall Hotel. That was one of our first when we were all underaged in Balmain again. Yeah, after uh, school finished, we did pretty. We started touring up the East Coast. And Mitch was a, our booking agent. 
at the time and then he worked with a few other people actually other agents up there and but he got all the business of the band going at the start you cover a plethora of arrangements when you say we toured up the east coast i mean for a start off you need transport right? mm-hmm. and i know you say you enjoyed hanging out with the guys but hanging out with the guys in a tarago traveling from gig to gig up the coast was that fun It was brilliant, actually. Yeah, I decided not to go to university at the time and I started, I just went to work touring (laughs) with the band and it was getting some success and it was getting a buzz and um, lots of momentum. I think we were kind of like a a bit of a novelty because at the time there wasn't many 18-year-olds playing American soul, blues and roots music. There was a blues scene, of course, but not many youngsters like us doing it who really loved it. We were just touring in the most beautiful places. Of course, you know, just out of school and going, it was an adventure. It really was an adventure and and we had great times in the Tarago. Um, listening to one, all the other guys introduced me to some fantastic music. So we played along as we were travelling and then we'd get to all these beach towns and check into the hotel. Sometimes the hotels were good, sometimes they weren't. Do sound check play that night, um, we'd go for a dive um, in the ocean in the morning and then hot head off up the road and t- to the next gig. It was, it was fantastic. And there were so many venues in those days up the coast, weren't there? Yeah, 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 there, there were. There was definitely, um, well, our usual scene, our usual run was going from, uh, sometimes we'd play Newcastle and then we'd go up to, all the way to Coffs Harbour and a little bit inland, um, but we'd also do Yamber and Dorigo up to Byron Bay and then up to Queensland. And then we'd keep going further sometimes up to Noosa and all the way up to Cairns. Yeah, was uh, there was quite a few. There was quite a few, but we had our kind of regular circuit that we did. What music are you playing at this stage? Oh, from the beginning in Papa Lips, we were writing our music. We we probably were doing about a third of covers, I'd say, and the rest was original stuff. So from quite a young age, you're doing your own material. Yeah, yeah. I was writing music when I was, you know, learning guitar. I probably started writing when I was about 14, 15, very different stylistically. I was kind of doing more folk stuff. You know, I looked up to a lot of female singer-songwriters as a young girl, as you do. So it's like I was looking up to Joni Mitchell and Linda Ronstadt and Emmylou Harris and all these people that were kind of my, as a 14-year-old, I was listening to my parents' record collection, you know, 13, 14-year-old, and I was greatly inspired by them. I had a guitar teacher, Mark Williams, who's also based in Balmain. And when I started learning more about the guitar, and I also experimenting with open tunings and this is that, this and that, the writing, yeah, it came pretty naturally. It wasn't like I had any project to write music or anything. I just started doing it. You're doing this touring, you're playing these gigs, but eventually you have to record something. Yeah, so it's interesting too. When I joined the band with my brother and first start, well, first when Papa Lips came to be, um, even though I was writing more of this folky stuff, I didn't wasn't writing a lot in that incarnation in the beginning. I was contributing because we'd all get together and I think a lot of it was Mitch was bringing a lot of his stuff in and we were also working with Clayton Dolly at the time, you know, from the Dolly Brothers. And I'm sure people are aware of him, but an incredible, unbelievable Hammond organ player, pian- pianist. He was writing, Mitch was writing it. And we and then me and Deck and Ro, I think, we all contributed to that too. But he was bring, they were bringing the bulk of the songs in and we'd work on them. And then it wasn't until the second album that we did that I started and Declan everyone started pushing more about all of our songs into the mix this is high time now yeah high time now. 
I'll be free. I think we recorded. I think we recorded Harmony possibly at Five O One Studios with Trent Williamson, who is a brilliant engineer, and he's a fantastic harmonica player. And I remember we were actually Trent was working there <laughs> as an engineer or as assistant engineer at the time. He was the same age of all of us, and I'm pretty sure we got the night shift for the um, cheap. <laughs> There was, you know, a bunch of big bands that were recording in there during the daytime and we just did the nighttime shift, yeah. We've made an album. We've got something to sell. We sound pretty good. Well, yeah, we had momentum and we had a following was starting to develop and then we all decided pretty quick that, oh, we need to record something. And, yeah, so I did feel that things were building as a band and it was, it was really exciting and we were getting more gigs up the coast, more people were aware of us, and, yeah, it was developing really nicely at that time. See, a lot seemed to have happened in 1998. You also get signed to Albert Productions. Right. You're making me remember all this stuff. <laughs> we were actually being managed by John Brewster of the Brewster Brothers of the Angels. After I can't remember where exactly in the <laughs> timeline that was, but... He's the one, who, of course, the Angels were with Alberts, and so he introduced us to Harry Vander, and Harry Vander uh, decided to produce us and get us on Alberts. Um, we recorded at Alberts Studios, but we were still independent at that stage. That's when we recorded over in North Sydney. Before that, we worked... I'm just remembering the timeline. <laughs> yeah, before we got to North Sydney and worked with Alberts, we did High Time Now was done at Electric Avenue with Phil Punch, who I don't know if everyone's aware of Phil, but he's Sydney's best recording engineer, I think, practically. He's a uh, technical genius when it comes to recording, and he's got every piece of analogue gear you could possibly want. Loads of people came through Electric Avenue Studios, and, uh, yeah, he's a bit of a, an unsung hero. He's a brilliant, brilliant artist and engineer. These were the days when there were, down at the lowest level, there were sound engineers, whereas today you don't really come across a sound engineer until later. You know, I mean, everyone's producing their own music. Right, right. It's very uh, easy to produce your own music now. And it's like with art and media. Baby can take a photograph and you just put it through an app and it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> or great. the same with music. I can record something and it, it can sound terrible you just press a couple of buttons, literally, it's in time, it's in tune. But I actually love this technology and I think it's so wonderful to have it all on hand. And I really like kind of using recording raw in the studio and using all these fantastic tools to make it just sound the best it possibly can be. Skipping along there, the, you decide you're off to New York. and This is 2001. Yeah, so... I guess we weren't being managed by John anymore and we were now being managed by uh, Francis Cody who I think he also managed Thirsty Merck for a while and he was a good friend of ours and together I think through Harry's Connections and Francis, we set up a bunch of meetings to go to New York and we had the EP that with us, I think we'd recorded at Albert's, we took that over with us and we met about um, half a dozen, you know, major labels over there. But the problem was, yeah, we got literally arrived in New York two days before September 11. And I basically remember waking up on the day I think Francis knocked on my door and said put on the TV put on the TV you know and the first plane had gone in the towers at that point and everybody was just they were like 
hunker down, don't leave your room, you know, we're all just in shock working out what happened. And then, of course, we're watching the TV and we see the second one, the second plane go in the towers. And, um, yeah, we were just basically then hunkered down. None of our relatives in Australia could get through to us. All the phone lines were completely jammed for 24 hours. There was nobody on the streets. Everyone was just inside. I think we were due to fly to LA a couple of days later and we couldn't go anywhere. So we were stuck in New York for a week. All most A lot of our meetings were cancelled. A few people decided to meet us several days after. But we, I mean, for the majority of the meeting, we're all sitting around talking about what happened. Yeah. <laughs> Every, everyone needed to talk about it and, and vent. It was crazy. But I remember, you know, I was walking down the Times Square or whatever the day before, packed, chaos, crazy, you know. And then literally you go walk out the next morning and it was an absolute ghost town. You could see all the way down for blocks and blocks and blocks and blocks. Just nobody because everyone was inside. And I also remember everyone being in such a rush, rush and so busy and this and that. And a few days after, New Yorkers have a, I guess, reputation to be always on the go and not having a lot of time for everybody. <laughs> but a few days after, everyone was just venting, talking to everybody and everyone came together and really helped each other. So it was crazy. I mean, out of that, we, I don't, think it was great timing as a band to go there, obviously. I think it did contribute to why that things there didn't come to be. We just got really lost in the mix at that point. And your outsiders coming in here. That could have been part of it as well. Yeah, I just, I mean... It was crazy. I mean, like the very two days after two, I remember somebody like selling shirts on the street, basically like I'm death to Osama. I mean, (laughs) but like, uh, yeah, it was it was um, it was a crazy time to be there. Absolutely. Completely. It did change the world and changed America somewhat. Definitely. What happens after that? You're back to Australia because there were no flights for ages, were there? No. So we did, so we eventually got a flight to LA and we had a few more meetings there. Yeah, then we basically, then we came back to Australia. We kept rolling down the road and kept went straight back on tour in Australia and yeah, life goes on. You had to just, had to keep going. At this stage, Papalips or Granger as it's now called, it sort of starts to dissolve. Yeah, yeah, I really, uh, there was a lot of different factors, but I do think that style, we were all feeling very differently stylistically where we wanted the band to go. Deck was doing a lot of more reggae and kind of like he was, it was not, when I say a little bit of reggae, but he was writing a lot of his own music as well. And I think he was getting excited about writing that, uh, which he's still doing now. He's got some beautiful, beautiful songs. There was the soul and blues you know, side to what we were still doing. I think I was going a little bit more rock. You know, I wanted to kind of rock out a little bit more. Yeah, some of us wanted to stay a bit more traditional and some of us wanted to experiment more. But that wasn't said and that wasn't talked about. It, it's just looking back, I can see that's what happened. The thing about live music is you get a, an immediate reaction from the crowd. So you must get some sort of idea of what's working and what's not. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, you do. Definitely a great thing to pay attention to. Yeah, if you're loving it, if you're having a one, really enjoying what you're playing and singing as a band or individually, generally the audience is going to be enjoying it too. And that is it. It is, is a, a give and take and a transfer of energy between the audience and the band. You can you know it if you if it feels good to you. You know you know you're onto something. So what happens then? Cara Granger starts a solo career. Yeah. The other members of Pupalips were such fantastic players <laughs> that they all also, everybody started getting picked up for different projects, like come and play keyboard with me or come play bass guitar or drums with me. Or, so a lot of that was happening too. We were also getting a little bit older and we had to make a living. Yeah. So 
doing sessions with other people was a good way to go. We were doing actually quite well. However, you can only go so long living on beans and bananas, touring in a <laughs> yeah, in a right. Like you, For our age and what we were doing, we were making it work. And we were coming back with some money out of our tours. But it was like, it was, it was also, I think it had its time, kind of got to where it could have got to and did what it was meant to do for each of us. It was basically university for the for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> it was where they taught me so much as a player, um, which you get out of being in a strong relationship, which is what a band is, for several years, whatever it was, seven years or, you know, we learnt so much from each other and then we kind of catapulted off into different directions. Somewhere along the line you decide you are moving to the US. Right. I was signed by Craving Records, which is an Australian label. Secret Soul, the EP. That's right. That was done with some of my favourite Australian musicians, Hamish Stewart on drums and Jonathan Schwartz on bass and Stuart Hunter on keyboards. Amazingly wonderful musicians. I've been extremely lucky. I don't know what it is, touch wood, but why? <laughs> I've got to play with a lot of incredible musicians. I really have. Anyway, yeah, we did that and then uh, we decided to take it over to America and see if somebody over there would pick it up. And I ended up, you know, I went over there thinking I'd be there for a year or something and uh, I think it's about 13 years later. <laughs> I'm still there. I've done a lot. I've done three more albums since and, you know, it's life goes on. Grand and Green River. So that was the first full-length recording I did in Los Angeles. Yeah, Green River, I think, Credence. Ah, yeah. Well, um, it's a little bit cryptic, yeah. but I was doing a lot of work and performing in Texas and travelling back and forth between Texas and L.A. And the musicians on the album, most of them, there was one guy from Texas, actually. Um, most of the others were L.A. guys and, and again, incredible, incredible musicians. Um, even had Richie Haywood playing on a track on that album. I was a huge Little Feet fan growing up. He was a drummer from Little Feet, so that was a nice moment. But um, James Taylor's backup singers, Arnold McCullum and David Lasley. Yeah, but where did that name come from? I felt like the sound of the album was kind of a combination of Texas and L.A. It was kind of, it was a fairly smooth production, like you would imagine from L.A., but it had this real rootsiness too as well, like Texas. I found um, that's a river that pretty much runs through the (laughs) centre. Yeah, Grand and Green River was in the middle of Texas um, on a map. That, that was a big hit, wasn't it? I mean, top 40 Americana. For- oh, I did good on the Americana, that one, and it was a very Americana-sounding album. I wish you didn't have to pick, you know, where you want to be placed, but um, oftentimes it does help because then you get these communities of people all around the world who belong to like Americana Association or a Blues Association or singer-songwriter or indie or whatever you want to do, these support groups that can help you, which is great. An album of covers, LA Blues. That's right.
I just I had never done an album full of, of blues songs, so it was time. And I, you know, it was in Papa Lips. We listened to a lot of blues. Thanks again to Rowan, Declan as well, but Rowan and Mitchell, they'd go and uh, collect vintage records and say, you know, before it was cool to sift through vintage record stores, they were doing it. <laughs> finding all these this wonderful music so anyway they you know brought the blues into the sound and I've always loved it I love all folk and jazz and pop and rock and I'll just as well listen to ACDC as a blues record but enjoy it just as much but I decided to do that and pay my hom- you know pay a little homage to some of my influences on that one JJ Kale song on there yeah sorry yeah. I just want to you love JJ Kale I love JJ Kale yeah, yeah. More blues with Shiver and Sigh in 2013. Yeah. And then 2018, Living With Your Ghost. Going a little bit more rock. equals music in everyone's mind. What's it like living there? I love living in Nashville. I'm living on a a street where 80% of the residents are musicians. They're all very talented, wonderful musicians. Great group of people. They're all very laid back. Kind of reminds me of Australia. (laughs) So it feels like home. Just very friendly and lovely, lovely people. And it's inspiring. And it's I feel very much at home because I'm with like-minded artists and uh, there's always music going on in town every night of the week if I want to be part of that. I can write with other people. It's one, another way, of course, to be for a different stream of music. Then you might get a placement with some other artist in town or whatever. And uh, I can work on my own band. I can do sessions as a guitar player or a singer as well. Just write for myself. And yeah, there's lots Lots of ways you can uh, work as a musician in Nashville. So you're happy there? Absolutely. I've been there two years. Yeah, and I um, I found a place in East Nashville, which I landed straight away. Actually, was again very lucky. <laughs> feels like you're a little bit in the country, but you're in the city in five minutes. So it feels wonderful. You're making a living? Yeah. So, I mean, there's been lots of times on the road up until now where, you know, it's challenging and you, you know, you're stressed out to pay your rent every week. And this is the lot of most musicians, a lot of musicians. And I'm making some better decisions now. I am living a fantastic life now. I'm, I'm very grateful, very appreciative of what I have going now. I'm in a community of musicians in Nashville that I absolutely love. And I'm also lucky that I can come back to Australia today and uh, once or twice a year and and do some shows here as well. I mean, I've always been incredibly lucky. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) I'm one of those people. Yeah, which is not something a lot of musicians would say, is it? Yeah, you know, I I mean, I possibly would have made a few different choices. You know, a lot of people fall into the trap too when they're younger, but they don't value themselves enough. It takes a lot to get up there in front of a crowd. And people don't remember that if there's someone's up there playing for a one hour, two hour, three hour show, it's taking not only probably a day or two rehearsal, weeks and weeks of preparation. It really takes a lot of time. 
to prepare this stuff from chiseling the song down to where it's going to be to practicing how you're going to sing it to so much time behind the fact when you're actually up on stage is put into it and now people say hey you want to come do a gig 200 bucks it's like you know what that's weeks of work that someone's put in to do that it's time that we value (laughs) musicians you know because it's not like the dollars the dollars increasing but I've spoken to a lot of people and still a lot of musicians all around the world will get the same rate that they were getting in 1984, you know? <laughs> so I think the Arts Council and everybody really needs to support the music scene in Australia and, and, and value them for what they're worth. But I know so it comes back to valuing yourself. Plenty of other good situations where you can earn what you deserve. You know, don't necessarily also always do it for the guy in the corner. So that's great exposure. You, know, you can ride around on the back of a fish and chip truck and... We'll <laughs> So what happens now? With- I'm going to work on an album when I get back to uh, the States. I'm actually leaving tomorrow yes. <laughs> to get back. <laughs> and thank you for your time. Oh. I didn't think this would happen. but I'm glad we're making it happen, absolutely. Glad mm. we made it happen. Yeah, so I'm going to go back and I'm going to work on an- another album. I have about five or six songs that I know I want to include. I need to get a couple more. I still like doing albums because just that's really more for myself. <laughs> because it's not really that essential these days unless you're touring a little bit of touring's opening up i've got a tour of florida in june and i'm also playing the dallas guitar show in uh, soon about a week after i get back actually so more things are coming in america's opening up again as all the roll the vaccine rollouts are happening really fast there yeah they're leapfrogging us aren't they yeah well it's because they have so many numbers I have a label of my own, which I predominantly have used to put out my own music, but I am working with another band called the South Austin Moonlighters. She's awake before everyone gets up early for the rising sun. They're from Austin, Texas. Um, all fantastic singers and guitar players. And also there was, um, I was working with a blues guitar player from Italy called Dan Frankie. He was on, he's, it's called Station House Records. Um, my hope is that it's a development label, that I can get people to a certain level that maybe they would be big enough to be picked up by a major is really the way I'm trying to treat it. But I do feel like I'm at a stage I really want to help younger artists now. You're becoming the person you wish you'd met when you were 18, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> I do feel I've made a lot of great choices and a lot of mistakes and I and I feel like I can help some some people coming up as well so so if this is more of a it's a it's a label it's a promotion and distribution predominantly so what does a label do well there's different ways that labels operate um you can do the whole from you know finding the artist and recording the album and then working with distributors to make sure it gets out to the most, you know, most accessible as it can possibly be and it gets the best promotion that it can possibly get. So now that distribution means just making sure it's everywhere online and anywhere that is wanting, you know, hard copy vinyl or anything like that. Because it's not getting the vinyl to the record store anymore, is it? Sorry, that's my era. No, no, but there is still some around, yeah, there is, there is a little bit of that still around the world, particularly as you know, there's a bit of an upsurge in vinyl. So yeah, we're kind of, um, right now the 
South Austin Moonlighters and, you know, um, I have a partners in the label too and together we found found the producer for them, found the studio, got her out there and worked with um, also in, then employed some third-party promotions and people, etc. get on board and push it out and coordinate the release. It's kind of what you do. And there's a lot of people out there. So how do you cut through the noise there and, and bring attention to these new acts? I have some good people that I know I can rely on in the... But in the... Promotion world, there's a couple of people I know that I can really trust who have the, the right connections within, particularly in the Americana or, or the blues world. And so they, they're great at getting it to the right people. But I really think the biggest thing is the band themselves doing this YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and regularly and building that up and um, then of course touring is is you kind of it's like you know you've got to have all the ducks in a row you, you kind of have to um, have them all happening at the same time during the the year of 2020 when everybody was in lockdown and had a break it really it was great it made me kind of reevaluate where I want to take my music I did some streaming which is great but it took a little time off too think time's not a bad thing no no I, I feel like moving forward I, I was kind of also jumping out there and taking any gig here or there wherever the the dart landed <laughs> on the map which is really fun too I love turning up to unexpected places I've you know played in tiny little joints in you know Decatur Illinois to which where there's actually a really cool little club there that I like to play and then at Portland Blues Festival and Singapore supporting Robert Plant and Paul Simon and Bonnie Raitt and all these people and then the next week I'll be playing in a little cafe and it's like I love it I absolutely love turning up in unexpected places, <laughs> being somewhere new, yeah. As Ryan puts it, when he climbs up on stage and he plugs in the bass, he feels like he's home. That's what is most... Yeah, me too, me too. I think, you know, by the first song for me, you're like, you might be just getting into the zone. But by the second song, yes, I feel the most completely at home is a perfect way of putting it, as, as Rowan said. I feel like I'm myself, 100% myself when I'm doing that. I started uh, playing music because I've always never wanted to be confined. <laughs> I think I started, no, I just, I love the freedom of being on the road. I love the freedom of choosing my own hours as a musician. I feel free when I sing. It's free from your mind, I suppose you could put it. But I, I do. It's a very healing thing, music, but I do feel free. I am the master of my own destiny, I believe. <laughs> I've got to say thank you so much for having me on as part of your podcast. And what a wonderful thing to be doing, to be, you know, reminding people and educating people how you can make it this work these days. And it's a fun way to go, though. I mean, I don't know what Rowan and the other guys say about it, but there is definitely a feeling of freedom. You're your own boss. You obviously, you get so much joy from playing music. And uh, I love turning up in all these random places. You never know where you're going to go, who you're going to meet. It's I do. I love it. It's great. So that's a sense of freedom, yeah. Cara's already back in Nashville. She's already appeared at the Dallas International Guitar Festival. She's working on a new album, and as soon as we hear that, uh, we'll update this episode. You can catch Cara on 
Instagram at Cara Granger. She's got her own website, caragranger.com, and her label is stationhouserecords.com. We'll hear a little bit more from Cara when we wrap up in the final episode. So this is the end of the Belmain Trilogy. Next we're going to hear from some digital natives. People trying to make music in a world of Instagram and Spotify and streaming. Produced and mixed by Neil Ashworth on Goringai Country. The intro music is I'll Be Free by Pupalips from the album High Time Now. Check out the website fishwishing.com.au for all the other details, including a track list.